From Construction Waste to Second Life, Making Reuse of Building Materials Happen, with Joe Connell. Hi, I'm Katie Wellen, and join me each week as I talk with experts around the globe about circular economy. You'll find out what's being done to make it a reality, and if it can really solve the problems it promises. It's time for Getting in the Loop. Welcome back to the Getting in the Loop podcast. I'm Katie Wallen, and I want to give a big thank you to all of those who have left reviews on our iTunes page. Last week, we started our Earth Day giveaway in collaboration with last week's podcast episode guest, Catherine Wheatman. Catherine is the author of A Circular Economy Handbook for Business and Supply Chains, and she graciously gave me a copy of her book to give away to one lucky listener. To have a chance at winning, all you need to do is leave a review of this podcast on iTunes. I'll be drawing one review at random on May 1st, so you still have some time to get your review up on the iTunes page. To learn how to leave a review on iTunes, even without an account, check out the show notes of Catherine's episode, episode 8, at gettinginthelooppodcast.com. So definitely leave a review and be entered to win this great giveaway and get in the loop with Catherine's book. Now on to today's episode. Today on the show, we're talking with Joe Connell, the Executive Director of the Building Materials Reuse Association, also known as BMRA. Joe's been in the building trades since age 15 and has 20 years of experience in the reuse industry, with many accomplishments including helping to launch several local reuse groups in Portland, Oregon, and serving on the City of Portland's Deconstruction Advisory Group to pass the nation's first deconstruction ordinance. In this episode, Joe tells us about the BMRA and shares his knowledge of the building materials reuse landscape in the U.S. We focus on current opportunities, challenges, and trends regarding building deconstruction and material reuse. Thank you so much for being here, Joe. It's great to have you. Hi, Katie. Nice to be here. Thank you. You are the executive director of the Building Materials Reuse Association. Could you tell us about this association? How did it come about and how does it work? Well, BMRA is actually celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. So we've been around a long time. We were started back in the early 90s by a bunch of old deconstructors and reuse folks and some folks from the forest um, forest research industry just trying to figure out how we could how they could make a difference you know a lot of a lot of the work of deconstruction over the last 50 years or so has been very much under the radar you know deconstruction and reuse went underground uh, for for a long time and it's nice to see it making a resurgence again but for a long time it was up to small individual local operators doing much of the much of the reuse so bmre grew out of that movement early on and uh, we're still here promoting reuse and deconstruction nationally and uh, a little bit internationally we work with folks in canada and uh, and europe a little bit as well and australia so Mm -hmm. we get around It's really fascinating. And, and as you say, it's sort of like this resurgence as well in this interest in decon- deconstruction. I was thinking, who do you work with on a day-to-day basis? 
Well, our core group is, is a, we're a member-based association. So that said, we've got a couple of hundred members in, in the countries I mentioned. Most of our membership tends to be uh, actual deconstructors, contractors who take buildings apart, um, reuse professionals um, who operate reuse centers. Uh, we also have a number of upcyclers, people that take the uh, materials claimed from deconstruction, um, turn them into a, a new product or upcycle them into, into a value-added product. We're also finding that we're connecting more and more with people in other, what do we call it, our, our connected industries. Mm-hmm. Um, people who work in sustainability, pollution control, uh, people who uh, are connected to city or state or regional governments um, that have an agenda to to reduce waste or other things like other other goals that are that reuse and deconstruction can assist with. Um, so more and more we're connecting with those folks as well. Uh, we also are involved a lot more with um, with researchers and students who are doing sustainability programs and are seeing reuse and deconstruction as a as a very interesting opportunity for development. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, is there a specific type of material you're often working with or you find your members are working with? Is it more concrete, wood? Yeah, our industry, again, because growing up with, with a lot of, of smaller local nonprofits and, and operators, the, the low-hanging fruit, if you will, tends to be residential. Um, so that's pretty much what our, what our industry's grown up around. You know, the, and the value in residential homes is typically in furnishing uh, soft-stripped things like doors and windows, architectural salvage materials, things like that. Mm-hmm. The thing about a true deconstruction where you take the building down in reverse order is you get at the lumber. You get at some of the meat and the bones, which oftentimes has a lot of value. You know, you look at a, a home built in 1920s, here on the East Coast, and there's beautiful old old pine, old hard pine, you know, 200 year old stuff. Go down south, it's it's yellow pine. You go out, you go out west, Calif- Northern California and, and uh, the Northwest, and uh, there there's two by ten cedars framings, and this this material is just incredibly valuable. Maybe not always monetarily. But it, it's a resource that we that we won't see again, and typically it's being wasted. So that's that's the deepest value coming out of deconstruction and reuse. Now, commercial commercial uh, is a whole nother. Oh, that's a big one because um, we it's virtually untapped territory, except for old barns, old warehouses, things like that, that are easy to to get at the materials. 20th century buildings that are built with a lot of concrete, uh, very hard to get a lot of value deconstruction out of it. That said, I did know of a a giant warehouse in Portland, Oregon, that was built of two by sixes on the flat, laid up the entire factory. And the whole thing was dismantled and all the two by sixes, which were all beautiful old clear dug fur uh, from back in the day. It was all dismantled. um, And the, the, that beautiful virgin, virgin uh, dug fur was saved. So, so it is possible to do it on a large scale. That's that's crazy. I'm thinking a lot of times when I think about reuse and materials, like from coming from my perspective of buildings, I think of you know these giant 
uh, skyscrapers or, you know, at least commercial buildings, but that's just one aspect of it. You have all of these other types of buildings, uh, the commercial, the, the res residential, and also what you say about like the preservation with the different types of material sources as well, the cedars that you mentioned, for example. I've never thought about it like that before, so it's quite interesting. Mm -hmm. There's also, you mentioned preservation, there's also, um, we're doing more work and making more deeper connections with historical preservation folks. Typically, historic preservation folks say, you know, don't tear a home down. And I totally support that. Uh, historic homes, uh, it should not be the first option by any means. But if a building, a historic building is going to come down, we need to salvage as much of that material as we possibly can. And that's where historic preservationist and reuse and deconstruction uh, industries are starting to, to find each other and talk to each other. Not about taking a building down just for the material, but if something has to come down, make the highest use of the materials that you possibly can. Yeah. Is there some way that this knowledge is being being shared amongst, you know, the deconstructor in the East Coast to the deconstructor in the West Coast? Yeah. Um, historically, our organization is, has been a little more internally focused. So we've been trying to network and get to know each other because mm -hmm. um, a lot of people, like you said, people on the East Coast doing deconstruction didn't know about people on the West Coast. Um, so we, most of our 25 years has been about building that industry internally and learning from each other and creating networks and supporting each other. In the, in the last few years, we've started to look a little more externally and started and are trying now to really embrace other industries, especially with the, with the evolution of circular economy and zero waste and life cycle building, uh, things like that. People are starting to look at the built environment very differently and looking at the potential for how differently we could do it. And our role now we see as turning out a little more outward to those folks and saying, hey, don't forget about deconstruction and reuse. They're extremely valuable tools that if you're addressing how we build buildings better and how we uh, look at our built environment, they're extremely valuable tools to, to help meet end goals of salvaging materials and diverting waste. And, and the other aspect is we represent the side that keeps it local. Um, a, lot of, a lot of these movements are very big. Um, they're involving huge corporate international players. Um, but what we don't want to forget as we start moving towards a circular economy is that we need to involve the, the local folks and the grassroots folks. One of the really fun things about our industry is deconstructed materials and, and reuse centers tend to keep the materials local and available to people who, who need them. You know, a lot of, a lot of our, uh, I ran reuse centers out in Portland, Oregon for 13 years, and a lot of our customers were, were needs-based. And we sold this material at a fraction of the price uh, that the materials would, would sell for new on the market. So not only is there the environmental benefit of salvaging this material so that we're not taking more, yet more raw material out of, out of the earth, but it's also taking this valuable material out of our standing buildings, turning them back into the community to create more jobs, 
deconstruction, for example, will employ seven people for every one person doing demolition. And that's local jobs that are entry-level positions, basically for, you know, that really work well for programs serving people with barriers, uh, unemployed, underemployed folks, things like that. And then those materials can go back into those homes and, and give people a chance to upgrade their homes. So it's, it's, a, it's a, a very localized way to keep that circle going. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times, we, especially with the, the interest in circular economy, it's been this focus that it has to be, you know, big global players. So what I like about uh, the BMRA is the fact that you're saying, no, actually, a lot of this, you know, the building and construction sector, it's not just about, uh, you know, commercial buildings. It's not just about at a global scale, but it's also, you know, the local local people and a social and environmental uh, aspect. Yeah. The other thing I'll point out there, if I can take a moment, is is it's deconstruction reuse is nothing new. You know, we've been doing that with the built environment since our our ancient ancestors stacked one one rock on top of another to build a shelter. Build a shelter. You know, uh, when that shelter fell down, they took the rocks and moved it. You know. Uh, across the path to to build to to build it again, we're talking about how we've always done it. Um, the change really didn't come about until post World War II. Prior to that, local deconstruction, dismantling, salvage, reuse of materials was the norm. And no one even thought about it. You know, it's like it's like the the, the folks talking now about, um, oh yeah, we can make bottles that can be collected at your door and refill them with with soda or something. You know, the old milkman model. It's like, okay, well, I remember milkman. We had a milkman. Uh, I think he was also my mom's bookie, but that's another story. <laughs> um, so we, you know, we're coming back to what we've always known how to do, and it wasn't. It wasn't necessarily globalized. It was localized. Now, there were some very, very big companies taking skyscrapers down in New York City uh, post-war, but it was all done by hand um, and minimal, minimal machine. Now, we need to find a way to balance those, to take advantage of, of modern technology and machinery and know-how, but go back to those grassroots of saying, wow, this still has value. Um, the easy days of taking raw materials out of the earth, shipping them around the world, building a structure, and then throwing all of it away 50 years later has to end. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. I would agree with that. Um, I'm thinking in terms of the, the, the technology that you, that you mentioned about, like technology with deconstruction. Has there been a lot of, have you seen improvements in the last couple of yeah, 10, 15, 20 years, or interest in technology and deconstruction. Absolutely, yeah. Um, one one uh, thing on the deconstruction side is using, it's, it's what we call hybrid deconstruction, where you actually use machines to help take a building apart into large pieces, like a chainsaw and a backhoe. <laughs> cut the roof off, lift it off, set it down on the ground, and then people can much more easily 
take it apart and salvage materials off of that. There's several variations of mechanized um, deconstruction that, that can come to play there. On large scale, that, that could be developed immensely. Mm-hmm. You know, thinking of commercial work again. Um, on, the other, on the other side of the coin, I was just at a, at a building called the Candata Building down in Atlanta. It's at, the, it's at the campus of Georgia Tech. And they, they're, they're, it's a living, living um, life cycle building. And one of, what they did for the second floor platforms uh, is they used two by four and two by six materials on edge nailed to each other. So they, they did as much timber as absolutely possible. And this is, this is a new development as well. A lot of people are looking at timber, timber construction because timber is much more renewable. Mm. And it embodies carbon. And it can be replaced much more quickly than concrete. So we're looking at, folks are looking again at timber built and, and how we can do even timber skyscrapers. Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> yeah, it's very cool. But this, this particular project used virgin 2 by 6 material for the structural integrity, sandwiched between reclaimed 2 by 4 because the 2 by, the two by 6 created enough structural integrity that they didn't need to rely on the integrity of the 2 by 4 So they made decks, 10 by 10 decks, out of alternating 2 by 4 2 by 6 all nailed together, and then put them in place on uh, on. Uh, on beams that were, uh, you know, collar beams. And that became the floor and the ceiling. Uh, and it was all reclaimed. And they saved a huge amount of money, evidently, doing it over, over buying all new material. Wow. So there's, there's a lot of very smart people starting to think about how, they can, how we can build differently. And the other aspect to that is building for deconstruction or designing for deconstruction. Architects and engineers thinking, how can we create and how can we design and build a building so that 50, 100 years from now, it can be broken down very easily into its components and reused? Mm-hmm. I've heard uh, uh, I've heard some about buildings as material banks, uh, this kind of idea of you know, design for the, you know, for the future. Um, and yeah, I'm coming from the perspective of being in Europe and hearing about that. So is there a lot that's also being discussed in the U.S. regarding that? Yeah, I, I looked at the Building for Materials Banks, BAMB, in Brussels, I think it is. And it's really brilliant what they put together there. Uh, we haven't gotten quite that far um, as far as uh, how we articulate it or even how we measure it. As you know, in the states, we have 50 states and a federal government, and um, sometimes it seems like if they talk to each other, they're talking in 51 different languages. Um, So it's hard to make centralized change, unfortunately. EPA should be given a lot more authority and a lot more responsibility to coordinate these efforts. Unfortunately, they're not. there's my political bandwagon. The, there are a lot of people, though, talking about bank, land, uh, materials banks. Uh, EPA has a group called the Sustainable, what is it, SMM, Sustainable Materials Management Group. Um, and they do look at, at the materials that are, 
that are in our built environment at this point. Uh, one, one basic thing we've estimated is that right now there is about a billion board feet of two by six and two by four material standing in U.S. homes. A, a billion, did you say? A, a, billion, a billion, over a billion, wow. easily. Now, if, if we look at, uh, I read another estimate that 30% of U.S. homes will probably be taken down in one way or another within the next 50 years. Really? That's a, that's a lot of wood. It's a lot of wood coming out of U.S. homes. Um, well, I think about a lot of a lot of the homes in the U.S. were built post-war. Yeah, no, it makes sense if I think about it. Yeah. But yeah, but you but to really think about that because that's one of the things as well about you know the fact that we're looking at buildings as material banks and the design of buildings now for for the future, but you maybe miss all of this opportunity of what's coming or mm -hmm. or it's going to be coming up quite yes. soon and what's going to replace those homes where are those materials going to come from are they all going to come from raw materials from our our, our forests um uh from from mining oh i hope not <laughs> well it sounds like a good opportunity for the bmra i hope so i think so yes i hope we can take advantage of it yeah so joe uh joe i also see that the bmra has an upcoming conference. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, our, our annual conference, which we've been doing for years, draws together, uh, historically drew together mostly deconstruction and reuse professionals, because we were all lonely people operating in different parts of the country, so we'd love to get together. But uh, the last few years, it's really morphed into more of, like I was saying before, that outward turning and our conference is trying to draw together the various industries that are also part of the built environment, architects, uh, designers, engineers, waste haulers, um, city officials, uh, folks like that, anybody who is involved in the built environment and the handling of materials. We want, we want to address that. We want to make sure that deconstruction reuse is a part of those conversations, be it circular economy, zero waste, uh, landfill diversion. Uh, so our conference typically has two or three tracks, or this year we'll have two or three tracks that we're hoping will introduce deconstruction and reuse on a deeper level to our our fellow builders and, and uh, environmentalists. Yeah, excellent. So that's in that's in Pittsburgh in October. Yeah, that'll be Pittsburgh October. Pittsburgh, a fun town too. So, and we're going to be at the we're going to be at the Phipps Botanical Garden, Phipps Center at the um, Botanical Garden. It's one of the highest rated buildings in the world for sustainability. It won Leeds and three other awards that I can't think of off the top of my head. I'm sorry. Seems like the perfect venue for 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 a discussion on deconstruction and material reuse. So. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have links to this in the show notes for listeners who want to check this out. I've been thinking about this during the call and I wanted to just ask a clarification. So I'm familiar because I do some work with like circular business models and, and different business models and know of different platforms that, you know, people can trade materials on. Does the BMRA have this type of platform or or do the local sort of deconstructors and material reuse, use, reusers 
like use their own platforms and there's a variety of platforms spread out across the US, for instance. Yeah, um, I, I think what you're basically asking about is material marketplace. Yes, that's what it, that's the correct word. Yes, um, we haven't cracked the code on that yet because like like you implied there a lot of of our folks all over the country have either very localized platforms either <laughs> word of mouth or a reuse center uh, with a local clientele i know of one deconstructor that uh, when he's taking apart a house he just puts it out on facebook where he's going to be and what he's taking out that day and his clientele show up and <laughs> and haul it off so we have not gotten to, uh, although some people have tried, we've not gotten to the place where there's really a national materials marketplace. Mm -hmm. um, if somebody out there would really love, has a really good idea about how that could happen, love to talk to them about it. I know of, of a couple of folks that are trying. Planet Reuse tried years ago, but could never get it off the ground. There's a fellow in California uh, doing, starting up something called Recapture It which is uh, an attempt at that. The, the things that go against, go and make it difficult are the volume of these materials and the difficulty in transporting them. Um, smaller items that people are wanting for their homes are not typically going to search for them very far, nor be willing to pay to transport them very far. On the other end of the scale, you get commercial developers uh, or architects and engineers who could scale up tremendously and take a lot of used materials off of somebody's hand. You know, and I've heard stories of this in, in Brussels through the, through BAMB, but how do you, you know, you, you, that material has to be stored. That costs money. It has to be transported. So it's that value-added piece um, and connecting the dots. Um, you have a materials marketplace for, for reuse. You might have a warehouse full of bricks that are all very usable. You know, how long does it take you to scale down those, to, to sell off all of those bricks that you're paying storage on and things like that? So, so it's not like Etsy where you can, you know, or eBay where you can, you know, some, somebody can throw it in a box and mail it off to you tomorrow. It's a, it's a much more complicated marketplace because of the volume and the size uh, of the materials we're talking about. That said, I know it can be done. I'm just not the one smart enough to do it. So you just don't have the time probably. I don't have the time nor, nor the talent to, to create a, a marketplace, but I, I think there's amazing opportunity out there for it. You do bring up a, a good point, which is a lot of the, the, the challenges that I also have encountered. One of the challenges I hear about material reuse is the cost between primary materials and secondary materials. What is your perspective on this and your experience on this? Oh, I have so many thoughts on that. It, the place I have to start, though, is, is it, it really comes down to how, how we measure cost. We don't measure true cost accurately of our, pri our primary materials. You know, for raw materials coming out of uh, another country, we have abs absolutely no, no measure of, of, of that. You know, we're seeing the effects of it now with climate change. You know, we, we deforest the Amazon and for various reasons. 
for our commodities and we change the climate on the planet. You know, how do you measure that cost-wise? It really, the, the, the primary answer to that question is we're just not measuring true cost. Uh, look at a, a two by four, for example. You, take, you can go to Home Depot and, and get a two by four for a few dollars. Um, it's unbelievable how cheaply they can sell a two by four when you think about where it's been and how it's traveled. It was a tree, it was cut down, maybe not by hand anymore, but cut down by, by a person in a, in a machine sitting in a bucket or something. It's cut down, it's hauled to a mill, it's milled, it's kiln dried, it travels halfway across the country to a warehouse, then might get redistributed back to where it started from, to a, a Home Depot or a Lowe's or, or a lumber yard or something like that. And yet, not so, and, and so much of those steps in between, of those places that two by four has been and the ways it's, it's traveled has been subsidized. Our highway system, our rail system, all of that has been subsidized by our taxpayer dollars over the last century. There is no such thing within the reuse world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the train system was built to get raw materials across the country, period. The highway system was built very systematically. The, the trucking system was, was created very intentionally to move materials, to sell products. It, it was part of the whole planned obsolescence movement coming out of the Great Depression. Planned obsolescence was extremely planned, but its cost on our overall economy and our, the, wealth, the health of our, our commun- local communities and our environment has been catastrophic. Now, you compare a two by four that comes out of a house that's being deconstructed and goes down the street to a local reuse center, it will likely be twice as much because it's being taken apart by hand People are getting paid real wages for it. It gets transported a mile away to a reuse center where there are jobs being created to resell this stuff and it goes in and someone can buy it. Now that two by four has seen, the difference is amazing. And it's because there are no subsidies in place. There are no incentives, uh, either tax or otherwise, to help create a reuse economy that can match the economy that was built systematically and with great strategy to keep the prices of raw materials low. If we, do, if we put that kind of energy and effort and strategy into how we, how we can keep the, our existing materials low priced and low cost so reuse becomes economically viable, that's the game changer, you know? Um, so it, it's really, a, it, it's, it's not about how do we, you know, how do we drive down the price of that salvage two by four by having, you know, by paying someone less to pull the nails out. It's how do we create an entire system that supports that and brings the cost down? Yeah, though, as, you, as you're saying, the system is not designed for the reverse. It's only for one way. One way pipeline. When I was working at the, the reuse centers in Portland, 
that I ran, we had someone call us once. Um, uh, it was a major distributor of materials uh, for the Northwest. He called and he said, um, I just received a shipment of sheetrock screws, 30 pallets of sheetrock screws, all in the little 20 pound boxes, you know. And uh, he said, the, when we started picking them up, the glue seal on the bottom of the box was weak. So you pick it up, the box would fall apart and the screws would all come out. So he said, so we called the manufacturer and told him this problem. And he said, oh yeah, sorry, we had a little bit of a problem with the, with the gluing machine. Go ahead and throw those away and we'll give you credit for it. You know, just nothing wrong with the screws. It was the packaging was off. And, and, and because the, the manufacturer had no way, his facility had no way of, of, of taking a box of screws, dumping it back into whatever manufacturing system they had so that it went back into fresh boxes. It was cheaper and easier and more convenient for them to just say, throw it away and we'll send you new stuff. Oh boy, that <laughs> just gets me going. I was at a course recently and one of the girls there was talking about how she had had a similar experience with her toaster. Um, and this is a company that's gone on record talking about the importance of circular economy. And then they said, oh, okay, uh, yeah, sorry about that. Uh, we'll just send you a new one. And she's like, I don't want a new one. I just want mine to be repaired. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, we have our work cut out for us. Yes, we do. We do indeed. And it's going to take a lot of people working together to make the shift. Yeah, definitely. As we start to wind down, could you tell me about what's next for the industry? What needs to happen? Um, there are other people doing research on different ways to use materials. Uh, for example, CLT, cross-laminate timbers. Uh, there are people looking at how, how reused or used uh, lumber could be could be um, used in CLT manufacturing. There's other ways in which I, I think there are engineering students and, and uh, architect students starting to grapple with the built environment from a much more holistic and systematic uh, way of thinking rather than our historic deconstructors and reusers um, thinking in, um, in more localized ways. And it's part of what I'm kind of, what I, what I'm getting at it when I say we need to bring the, bring the two together. We don't want the engineers and architects and these, these brilliant students going off in a off thinking that corporate, corporate change is the, is the only thing that's going to, going to make, make the difference but we can't stay where we are where it's a lot of little isolated local individuals and, and local organizations and businesses um, trying to create the impact somehow we need to move forward together yeah definitely before we before we wrap up i ask all of the guests that come on about the in the loop event that they would create so for the listeners who haven't played in the loop you probably have heard by now that this is the sort of final wrap-up question that I ask the guests. And essentially, when you're playing the game, there's different events that happen and they change the, the sort of the market conditions. They can impact the material availability or technological innovation, or they can 
be uh, circular policies that actually incentivize different uh, different things. So now you've had a little bit of time to think, Joe. I don't know if you have you decided on what your your in the loop event would focus on. Oh, it's so hard. Um, here's here's a dream I've had that I don't know if if you can turn into a card or not, but I'll state it. I'd love to be able to call my local lumber yard and say, I need a lift of two by fours delivered next Friday. And the guy who's picked up the phone says, great, do you want virgin or used? So you have a choice about the type of material that you can use. Yes, down to the level of a local lumber yard saying, yeah, you want used or new? Yeah. Okay. So I think we could work that into some future versions of the game in some sort of way that the consumers, they get more choices. And some of these choices are new, used, local, global. Uh, so thank you so much, Joe. Where can listeners go to learn more about you and the topics that we discussed? Well, they can go to our website, bmra.org, um, find a lot of information there. Um, we have a library there, which has a lot of information. Uh, forgive us, it's not very well organized. We're working on that, but there's a lot in there. Um, the other way, of course, is our annual conference. Um, Deconstruction and Reuse 19 will be October 28th, 29th, and 30th in Pittsburgh where we gather a couple hundred of the most amazing deconstructors and reuse people uh, from around the country and uh, Europe and even Australia sometimes. So if you, if you are excited about what you've heard today, please check out our conference. That's all for today's episode. And thanks, Joe, for coming on the show. Don't forget about our Earth Day giveaway. You have until May 1st to leave a review on our iTunes page. Head over to the show notes at gettinginthelooppodcast.com to learn more about the giveaway as well as topics we discussed in today's episode. I'll be announcing the winners next week. Until then, have a great week.